Ever wondered who and what is shaping Luxembourg? This is your Lux Unplugged podcast with your hosts, Adrian and Thierry. Hi, I'm Adrian. Welcome back to Lux Unplugged. In this episode, I get together with Antoine Welter, CEO and co-founder at CircleLine. CircleLine is a Luxembourg-based startup specializing in the upcycling of batteries. At a time when the whole world is grappling with an increasing scarcity of resources, and with individual nations racing towards tighter energy security, this conversation couldn't be more timely. It is a known thing that building batteries requires numerous minerals and metals to store energy. However, the process of reusing those materials towards the end of a battery's life cycle is less known and more obscure to the wider public. Here, Antoine walks me through his entire end-to-end battery upcycling process and explains why reusing raw materials from waste, also called urban mining, is something we can achieve despite a widespread industry skepticism. More importantly, CircleLine is not only hardware-driven, but also heavily relies on the use of data and AI. Here, Antoine explains to me how his company leverages the Luxembourg ecosystem to turbocharge the constant improvement of their machine-as-a-service proposition. But now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Antoine Walter, CEO and co-founder at CircleLine. Antoine, welcome to the show. Good morning, Alia. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to have you on. So for the benefit of the audience, could you just please give us a rundown of your background and just let us know how you came to that point where you are today? Yeah, sure. So I'm born in Esch, so born and raised Luxembourgish person. Uh, partially grew up in the US, uh, came back to finish my high school in Luxembourg, then studied in Barcelona, Munich, and Shanghai, and then started working in Germany, uh, in consulting for five years, more or less, and then came back to Luxembourg to start Circular uh, together with my co-founder, Xavier. It's interesting because people that go through consulting have a certain way of thinking, especially in terms of problem solving and uh, you know coming up with a certain out of a mold from, from that particular industry. So my, my question to you, Antoine, is how did consulting actually shape your, your way of thinking? Um, so I think it was very, very important for me as a person. I'm relatively outgoing, so talking and doing sales comes naturally, but structuring problems and writing a clean email and all of those things are things I think I learned very well in, in consulting. And obviously you learn it in a very condensed way. There's no time to, or you learn very quickly on the job, let's put it that way. Uh, and that's what I really love uh, taking away from consulting. But at one point, I also have to say, I kind of missed the impact I could have, and that's why I stopped. So that brought you from being part of the bigger structures, bigger corporates uh, that, that run the world in the consulting business to running your own business. So how did you find out that you, you had some form of entrepreneurial flair within you? What, what was the kind of spark? Along high school and in, in university, we always tried to do some wheeling and dealing. So I think there, there comes a little bit of the, the spirit of trying to take part in the business world. I always thought that it was uh, very interesting, read a lot about it. Um, and then we came, when I realized in consulting that a lot of, we did some really cool projects and strategies for clients, but they all ended up in a, in a drawer. Uh, and that, that really killed my motivation at one point. Uh, so I really saw that I don't only want to do nice PowerPoint slides, but I also want to make sure that it's implemented because that's also at least 50% of the, of the equation. Um, and that's, when I started to more and more get involved in, in the entrepreneurial world and also then eventually led to founding Circular. 
When was Circle Lion founded? Just just again for the uh, benefit of yeah, the Yeah, so officially on the 13th of October, 2021. But Xavier and me have been working since the start of the year, 2021, on the idea. 2021. Okay, so pretty much like a, a COVID time uh, <laughs> idea. Yeah, so yeah, great point. So actually the, the idea, Xavier and me cultivated a lot of the idea while going for long walks um, where we thought thoroughly about what we want to do. Uh, so that was definitely, it's a COVID, a COVID baby, if you want to. Going back to Circle Lion, so you said Xavier, how, how did you guys meet, first of all? And what, what were the kind of ingredients that came together that, that made you launch this, this initiative uh, and, and the mission you actually embarked on? Yeah, sure. So I knew Xavier for over 20 years. Uh, then we both left him he to Zurich uh, for his studies and me to, uh, left as well for my studies and working abroad. Uh, and then we reconnected uh, during COVID, uh, went for the walks, and then we realized quickly he had the perfect background, I would say, with his PhD in chemical process engineering from ETH in Zurich on the technical side and me more experienced on the business side. And we both believed that the founding team really needs to be complementary. Why? Because you need to be able to tackle quite a lot of problems in the startup. So it's obviously important that you're complementary, handle these topics in the best way. And what united us, I think, very early in the discussion was that we want to do something that has an impact. Uh, so where we said use our brains to actually do something more than just making money. I mean, also today, we're not a charity, but we believe that you can use your brain for the, for the greater good uh, because it would also have the biggest returns in the future, uh, in our opinion. Finding the, the right co-founder from the start is extremely difficult. The, Agreed. There's a lot of execution risk, and uh, you know, convincing your investors that that you can execute based on the on an idea, because it's not, not the idea can always be good, right? But but it's just about yeah, understanding. To, to quote Xavier on that, yeah, ideas are easy, execution is hard. It's probably not from him, but he read it in a good book. <laughs> well, I think from from a statistical point of view, the the biggest reason why startups fail is not because they, they I mean. Funding oftentimes is a big factor, but not the biggest. It's the, uh, it's the fact that the team doesn't go well together mm -hmm. or there's like uh, misunderstandings or, or disagreements between the founders. So, um, so I, I think what I'd like to understand is you, you mentioned some of it earlier that, you know, you've known, you've known Xavier for, for a long time, so 20 years, and, and you guys want to have, to have an impact worldwide. But, but maybe let me dig, dig a little bit deeper. What was the actual factor, you know, because you, you need a lot of nerves to, to go through things together. I think mm -hmm. some people say, you know, if you're married, you know, you actually know your co-founder more, more than your, your own wife, right? So to, uh, <laughs> so, or you have to know your, your, your co-founder more than your own wife to, uh, to, to know what kind of challenges you, you're about to face. So are there any, any other things that are actually sort of nuggets that you found into, in Xavier or Xavier that made you feel like, okay, well, we need to launch this thing and we're going to make it together? Yeah. So I think it was a lot about having hard conversations early, right? So before we even founded, we thought about how are we going to look at who has what kind of responsibility, who has what kind of strengths, who works on what. So we, we did a lot of front loading, I would call it, to kind of evaluate if we really, if we really are a match. So, and I think you can do a ton of that, but at the end of the day, you also have to be a little bit lucky that a person turns out to be what you thought he was. And I consider myself very lucky being able to, to found with Xavier because we're extremely complimentary. We've had also in a startup, you never only have good days, but if you can discuss and have fact-based discussions, I think that's 
the, the biggest leverage you have to having a good outcome. And then that's one part that co-founders have to, to click. And then the next one that is hard and you have to tra start transporting that to the team, which is also a hard task, but if you achieve it, and we're feeling that now after two and a half years that we're getting there at the team already starting to transport our spirit and that's great to see, but I think it's also uh, no doubt about it, a lot of work and we put a lot of effort also in leading by example and how we communicate and how we address problems and as well as solutions. So I think it's a, it's a balancing out uh, nonstop. Travis married. I'm not, so I can't tell you if he, if I, if I know him, but he might know me better than his wife. I don't know. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, one of our mantras is like radical transparency. And it's not always nice to live this, right? You have to be honest um, that you solve the problems when they're still small and not when they're an elephant in the room. And I think at that, we're very, very good at doing that. Uh, and that helps us a lot in our relationship, but also in the relationship with our team. You just said that you don't know if he doesn't know his wife better than you, but I'm sure or almost, almost sure that you spend more time with him than he spent with his wife, <laughs> given the... <laughs> given the uh, yeah, yeah, that's the, probably true. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. that's the price to pay in this kind of, uh, in this kind of venture. Yeah, sure. It becomes challenging when I spend more time with him on the weekend, then, then it might not be such a good, good side. It's interesting you're mentioning it because oftentimes you don't have weekends if you want to... Yeah, no, but I think we, we, we do we, this because you asked before about the COVID and we s still have kept this. If you have things you really want to talk about, we still go walking together. And we do this obviously on the weekend, so we're, we, we don't have any meetings around. And I think it's these kind of patterns that we keep. Now I already know after my holidays now, I'll come back and I'll go walking with him again on a Sunday afternoon. Sabi always says you fall back to the systems that have, you have in place. And this is, has evolved as a kind of a system for us to exchange very clearly without noise around on topics that we really think are important that we need to solve now. Um, and, and these kind of patterns, I think, and systems are super important as well for the communication. Yeah, it's the process you put in place, the more, I mean, the more you evolve here. And, and you're right, mm -hmm. just uh, dealing with problems, the, 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 the sooner the better, because they, yeah, they, they can escalate very quickly and then the whole idea goes, uh, uh, goes out to the bin. But mm -hmm. we were talking about solving problems. So what exactly are you guys doing you're in a batch of business but i want to give you yep. air time to explain to, to our audience what, what you guys are doing in, in more detail again think about the um, technicality of things and not being technical because i know that no, is scientific so um i'll let you, I'll let you explain that uh yeah sure so i think the, the, the bigger vision of circulan is this urban mining which is today still a myth so that we use all the resources that we already have and reuse them so this is what we the bigger vision what we want to fulfill how do we do that it's about, we start off with batteries today. Um, so you can think about a battery like your household waste, right? So everything is in a bag, it's mixed. And if they're separated, the aluminum to the aluminum, the paper to the paper, the, uh, then these materials might be worth something, but together in a big cluster as a battery uh, or as a bag of waste, they're worth nothing. So we are separating these components and through that, making them reusable. So that's probably the easiest way of describing what we do. It's kind of like building apart Lego and building it back together. And we use robots and computer vision and a lot of data to do this. I suppose many people have asked you that question before, but um, it also adds a bit more context to the way your processes work. You claim that you're in the upcycling 
business when Correct. it comes to batteries as opposed to mm -hmm. recycling. And mm -hmm. I think there is a lot of education needed in terms of you know, the public knowing. Mm -hmm. Because re recycling, you know, we're not, not just talking about batteries, but also recycling of plastic, which is a common yeah, sure. use case. But, but here, in, in the case of batteries, can you just walk me through what, what the difference is and how, how do you kind of distinguish yourselves by, by saying that you're you are doing the upcycling uh, part of things? Sure. So if you look at recycling, it's exactly what you kind of described with plastic. It's the same with, with batteries that you really decompose each material into, into its raw state, right? So you have powder for lithium, powder for cobalt. And what we do is more saying, let's enable each component that has already been built to live as long as possible. In the battery, the most notable one is the, the battery cell, which is something you have in your remote control for your TV, just in a little bit bigger, but there's standardized formats. So we can, if we extract these at a economically interesting value, we can reuse these components. We don't have to build a new cell. Um, so, I, and that's what upcycling describes. And in recycling, what you do is actually you destroy the cell to build a new one, but obviously that costs a lot of energy and a lot of CO2 footprint. Recycling involves just, just destroying things, using energy to, to reuse things or to rebuild things, as opposed to, hey, you're not, you're, not, you're not doing all this, you're just reusing all, all those components again without the energy use. For my own interest, actually, I, I was wondering, uh, while you probably you have two, two kind of challenges compared to what, what, what the kind of hype is today, um, although yeah. what, you, what you guys are doing today is, is, is much more important because we, we are kind of moving back into the real economy as opposed to the, the more intangible stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I, was, I was kind of wondering, you know, you're mostly doing hardware stuff, right? So you start them handling hardware components, which, which themselves mm -hmm. deserve as, as much attention as anything intangible. But what is the kind of, how would you compare the stuff that you're doing versus what well, the challenges that you're facing versus like the software industry that, uh, yeah, that sure. just writes code and, and the, you know, they, 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 they just go out with, with their licenses and sell their product and it's more scalable here. So how, how do you kind of, how do you see the kind of the, the distinctions in those two, um, Key, yeah. Key lines. So, so I kind of see that in, in, in two points, right? One is how do you address that internally and how do you build a company around that? And the, the second one would be more on the, how do investors see this point? So I'll, I'll tackle the first one. I think the hard part in hardware is that, and compared to software is that if you look at a software business, you can probably have 10 people in a room and they can come out with a product. Uh, rather quickly, an MVP, so minimal viable product, can be set up very quickly. In a hardware startup, you need a lot more people to interact, right? So you, you also work a lot with external suppliers, the one who does, I don't know, the best valve or pump or whatever it is. So you're a lot more dependent on working with others, but this also has a great attribute that you can actually develop if products that are hard to copy because you kind of bring the best people together from, from different parts of what a machine needs. So we need saw blades, we need industrial robots, um, we need conveyor belts for our process, and we can work with the best people in each domain to kind of set up a new process. In software, I think it's a lot easier to show something in the beginning, but it's a lot harder to differentiate yourself in really having a unique product. So that's the first one, how, how you kind of build it up. The second one on the investor side, I think there we've been, we had a very good timing because when we started off, hardware was still not so sexy. Now it's becoming more and more sexy. And whilst SaaS businesses, multiples or platforms 
kind of went down very, very significantly in the hardware space or climate space, they're still going up because it's a problem we really, really need to solve. Whereas do you really need the better SaaS solution for your HR? Maybe yes, but it's still a nice to have. And in crisis times, people tend to buy must-haves, not nice-to-haves. And as you described, in our particular case, we will need to get rid of these batteries that are on the street. So it's a must-have. And I think that's an important one. If you do hardware, you need to be very, very sure that it's a must-have. And how we mitigated this is that we did before we even started the company, because we read through... I don't know how many hundreds of academic uh, papers to make sure that there's, it's academically proven that what we can do, so on R&D side, it's proven that what we want to do makes sense and can be done. And on the other hand, I called everyone that I could get on the phone to understand what their biggest problems were with the battery. So I think in the hardware, you need to be very, very secure on that you're really solving a problem. Why? Because if you want you deploy a lot more money to have these iteration and feedback loops, right? If you really try to start to get into it. So that's extremely important in the hardware space that you very openly listen to what your clients say and what they're willing to pay for. I'll come on to the type of clients and industries in, in a minute, where, you know, the mm -hmm. kind of problems themselves, how you service them, how essentially, you know, they, they, they provide it with the batches and you give them, you kind of give them back in, in an upsiding fashion. But yeah, you were mentioning earlier the um, so the, the the dialogue that you have with with investors and 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 potentially like you know like seeing if there's a pro product market fit before you actually launch that idea. So in your case, as hardware is is a lot more capital ex expenditure intensive before you roll out anything compared to software. As you said, the I mean in both cases you can go through a lot of iterations, but it's much easier to go through an iteration when it comes to software because it's just changing 100%. a line yeah. of code and and uh, and just adapting uh, as you move along. Here in this case, you've got you know you've got material that doesn't work; it's not working as you expected. Uh, it's much more difficult to actually replace the hardware to to make it work to where where you want to be. So uh, I'm I'm just interested because I like I said earlier, I, I know the kind of conversations that investors will have when in, when they, they have like profitability expectations when you've got like the J curve, mm -hmm. the famous J curve, got like lots of cash burning in the beginning, yeah. but then but then once this PMFs, a product market fit, and then there's a lot of adoption. Then, then you, you kind of go exponentially to north in, in in that sense. I have no idea how how investors, what investors kind of say when it comes to to, to doing that. So I suppose the the element to doing the hardware bit. Sorry. So um, mm -hmm. what what did it tell you? So what's the kind of thing to say? Okay, well here's the money. That's your business plan, but but we expect X. Or is that is the impact that you're trying to achieve here uh, also having uh, some influence? Because again, it's it's like a it's like a new concept sort of. And uh, and at some point, you know, well, I mean, it's a, it's a viable product, but I'm assuming that the conversation is different. So back to you. Yeah, yeah. sure. So to share share a little bit of my experience, obviously on that is over two and a half years now talking to to investors only, but I can share kind of how how the discussion started and how they evolved over the economic times that we are in now, and to what I think potentially the future could look like. So I think in the beginning. To start off with, in our case, the problem and the economic value behind it was pretty obvious to investors, right? So they don't want you to be profitable as soon as possible, but they want you to grab, just like in software, as much market as you can in the beginning. Because it is, in our case, for example, if we roll out our machine as a service and we have them implemented at 
100 sites across Europe, then that obviously gives us a very strong handhold on everything that happens after a first life of a battery, no matter what, in, what matter first application battery had. So there, I think it's a lot about, it depends on who, you, what kind of investors you work with. We work with classical VC, so they obviously want to see uh, the growth curve being the most important part. I think what is also important in hardware that you can show that you have a clear path to profitability on unit economics, right? And that's something that's, I think, a lot clearer than with software, because in software you can, the way how you do today, a lot of public district companies still publish adjusted EBITDA, which is essentially means nothing. It's just a, a financial way to making yourself profitable or look profitable. That's very hard to achieve, to, to, to kind of, let's put it in parentheses, fake in hardware, right? So on a, on a unit economics basis, they do want to see that we quite quickly are able to dismantle batteries on a profitable basis. But as long as we grow into new verticals, into new product lines, the, the profitability of the company is not a priority for, nor for us, nor for investors that are looking at our business. So you said unit economics, is that what you said? Yeah. So on a, on a, on a per battery unit economics that we can dismantle a battery profitably, but if we continuously add to our data and our software layer, obviously that costs us a lot of money. So we're on a battery per unit economics profitable, but not in build, building the whole business and preparing it for the future. So actually, like, moving on to this topic, so profitability, how, how you deliver that service. So my understanding is, mm -hmm. and again, Antoine, just correct me here. So your, your target model is to offer, so, you, so essentially your clients, and we'll, we'll, we can speak about the type of clients in a minute, but you, mm -hmm. it's essentially about providing them with the technology that will allow them to dismantle batteries, take out the components and reuse them later, right? So, so you, you'll be providing some form of some form of license-based technology that the, the, the more they deploy you deploy that technology for them the more licenses and that's where the scalable part is kicking yeah. in is that the more the more technology they use of yours the more you earn the more you make money essentially right is that is that the way you see sure. it that's that's how we see it so we do that as a um, machine as a service as i described it what does that mean so on the one hand we install our robot cell at client sites these clients can come from the automotive industry recycling companies but also power tool providers, micro-ability providers, we install our machine there and then they subscribe to our software to run the machine. And the, the good part in that is that the more batteries we add to our library, so the more batteries we know how to open, the more our clients can increase their portfolio in how many batteries they can open. There comes the classical software and the scalability in play, right? Because we teach our robots once to open automotive battery from manufacturer X, uh, and we can play that across a hundred machines that are installed across Europe. So obviously we can drive down costs for our clients by still maintaining an interesting margin for ourselves. A while back when Tesla launched, they said they, they, they build electric cars, right? But, but at the same time, some people have argued actually it's a tech company because the software mm -hmm. that they've, they've built it was quite unique in, in industry, like, you know, the Volkswagen and the, the, the traditional car makers didn't have this level of, of, of tech functionality that, that they embedded in, in a Tesla. Uh, so, so some people say, well, the valuation of Tesla is, is, is justified because it's, 
yeah, it's a tech company. It's not, it's not, it's not an automaker, mm-hmm. but I think today's it's more like, like that. And what you just said, it sounds like, you know, you've got a, a software component to it, but at the same time, you need the hardware to, to, to function with it. So yeah, definitely, if, if, if you had to, to, to kind of tilt it towards one or the other, what, what would you say? Are you more like hardware or software in this case? Because your IP, yeah. there's a lot of IP in your software, right? Yeah. So I, I think we, 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 we started off as a very hardware heavy company because we needed just, as I mentioned before, conveyor belts, robots to um, manipulate things. We needed to design end defectors. So we started off very hardware focused because it is a physical product that we need to find a solution to, right? I can't put the battery on a table and then let uh, some software run on a laptop and the battery disappears. So we, we do need to manipulate it physically. So I think we started off hardware focused. We, it, from the beginning, looked at how can data help us solve or provide the biggest possible solution, right? So we, we from the get-go, saw that we need to use and leverage data to be able to solve as big as a problem as we wanted to, right? And with a high versatility, not only be focused on one type of battery, for example. So it's a huge fun. And I think the more we grow up, I consider us like half, half a teenager by now, uh, the more we grow up, I think the more we would become a software company. By now, we're almost, from an employee point of view, almost balanced 50-50 between people working on pure software components and people working on hardware. And this will probably tilt a little bit more into software. Why is that? Because as I described before, in the beginning, we need to treat a physical product, but all the value we can extract from these batteries is not only about the physical good, it's also about the data behind, right? Where is how much material in Europe? Uh, Where uh, can we provide just based on our data? Where can warehousing be provided? Where can state of health of these cells be analyzed by brands that produce battery cells. How can um, we just set a first deal with the commodities research investment bank on where or how many commodities in Europe? This is going to become more and more important. As I mentioned in the beginning, this urban mining is a, is a myth today. It doesn't really work, but we're, we're working on it to make it work. And that can be an amazing pop of great material that we can reuse but we need to be able to liberate them economically viable. And that's what we're working on. And I think if we want to accomplish that, then we will need to become a very software heavy software. And when I mean software, I mean also a lot of mainly data, not the fanciest software dashboards, but more just really using the data that we collect to find better processes, to open our batteries, to find better ways to measure different components, to find quicker ways of extrapolating how much materials will be where by, I don't know, two, two year forecast, for example. Walk me actually through a client use case, because um, you're talking mm-hmm. about a commodity research uh, investment bank, but they, they, they will not be a client of yours. It just did that be a partnership with it. Yeah, they would, be, uh, they would be a partner for us for the data that we can extract. So yeah, so you, you'd leverage their data to... Um, to enhance your, your own software, but without providing any names and so forth, but, mm-hmm. but do you have like, do you have like just, just, just like a key example where, where, you know, how do your clients source this boundaries to you guys and, and mm-hmm. how eventually will they consume this, this, this product? How do they, do they see them consuming the product and how will that help their business grow? And, and I suppose there's also a component of, yeah, that there is demand from shareholders and clients alike, 
to become more sustainable and actually have ways to mm. demonstrate it. So do you have mm. anyth- anything anything concrete in mind that you could, could walk me through here? Yeah, sure. So I, let's say uh, an automotive maker would approach us and say, okay, we're, I don't know, our growth rates in EV cars are 30% over the next five years. So the, the, the volume really increases massively. Um, but there's not enough, on the one hand, recycling capacity to deal with these uh, batteries. And secondly, because the recycling processes are so inefficient today, because the resources aren't used as good as they could be, uh, it's very expensive. So they say, okay, okay, could you provide us not only with, um, I think in, in everything we talk about also about the sustainable movement, it all has to be economically viable. That's super important in, in our opinion. Um, so we provide an economical and ecological solution to them. What does that mean? On the one hand, we can offer them a better price than going to a classical recycler. And on the other hand, we can help them, for example, if we reuse a, a vast majority of these components, we've now been certified and we can give them back the CO2 certificates that they had to pay for in the beginning to bring the product onto the market, right? So it actually really needs to make economical sense, in our opinion, not only be a, a good, let's say, green story, but it really needs to be economically viable for us to work with the big players that we, we are currently working with. The, the automotive example is actually interesting because I suppose at, at, at the minute, the type of batteries that you're recycling, they, they're not the, the whole, like the, the big batteries that you have in the EVs, right? You, you, you're just talking about the, the smaller batteries that are in combustion engine or combustion cars, isn't it? Because the, the dimensions can be different, like recycling, you know, the, the weight of a, of a battery in, in, a, in an EV car is, is much, much bigger than, than just the smaller component when you have combustion engines. So I'm just, just wondering, what, what is the kind of split at the minute, if there's any? So, so how, how did we start off? So I think it, what is important to know, in a combustion and you have a lead asset battery. That's not the ones. We only target lithium-ion batteries. So how, how did we start off? We started off with micro-mobility batteries, so e-bikes, e-scooters, e-mopeds. Then some clients from the power tool industry uh, approached us. So we, we added them to our battery library. Then we moved into EVs, so the really the, the big batteries. Uh, and there today, I'd say about 60% are hybrid batteries that are coming off the market already. And 60% are production scrap. So just batteries from all the big automotive makers that didn't make it through the last quality gate. And these are pretty big batteries. So they're about, the biggest ones would probably be somewhere around 600 kilos. So quite, quite big ones. And they're, they're, those we also uh, dismantle uh, as a service for the, for the OEMs. And presumably the ones that didn't make, that didn't pass the quality checks, they, I mean, they, they hadn't been used, right? So there's, there's, there's a full value to be derived again from it. The chemical values of these batteries are almost perfect. They just have some kind of, I don't know, a scratch or a plug wasn't. I mean, the, the, the criteria are extremely high in this industry. So these can be very, very high quality batteries. Or today also you have, for example, a lot of pilot batteries that they want to discard because they don't want anyone to see them, for example. It's just, it's just mind-boggling to me that, that those players would actually just, in, in normal times, they, would they just get rid of them or just, just no, not do anything with them because they, they would just be wasting a, an asset that, that would still have full value, but just it, it sounded like they, they were just never equipped to reuse that to begin with. It's just like you have the full production mode, but then if you've got like, like 
excess waste and you, you don't you, you wouldn't reuse it right it's like uh it's like a, no. a, ba- a bakery having dough and then and then if if you have too much dough then you just reuse it to make another loaf of bread right but here i'm, I'm just oversimplifying things but it's just yeah, yeah. to uh to uh yeah. to understand the problem yeah, it's, it's more i would say like it's more like they 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 bake the, the croissant or the, the bread whatever and then the day after they're not allowed to sell it anymore so they have to dispose it that's more i think the because they, they, they do with the raw materials they have, they do try to produce as much as possible, but obviously the outcome that they produce is not always at the, doesn't always reach the quality gates they want, but that doesn't mean that the raw materials inside and even the, the product inside isn't of great value. And I think this is also one, one part that I mentioned before with the economic value. It's also the more batteries that are now being produced, the more important it is to really find cleaner ways to dispose them because today we might call it recycling, but actually what happens to a battery is that you throw it into a, a shredder and after you shredder it, you burn it and then you recover minimal amounts of material. So I think that you're allowed to call that recycling, I think is at least after what I've seen and we visited almost all the recyclers in Europe is a pretty bold statement to call that recycling if you recover five, six, seven percent or less uh, of the raw materials in a battery. Just for comparison purposes, actually, and I, I don't know it. What is the in terms of percentage or any sort of comparable measure? But the amount of energy or, or sort of effort needed to recycle a battery in traditional ways compared to the amount of energy or efforts that are required to to upcycle using your processes. What is the split here? Just again mm-hmm. to give the audience a bit of a of, of an idea of how we uh, sure compare. So that. I think you you can calculate. We did a ISO forgot the number, what, what the certificate was called, but a very complicated and expensive external audit on our process. And the maximum amount of CO2 savings that you can claim with a product by law are 50% and we reach 48. So we're very close to the maximum. We are also working on the last 2%, which is a lot about, for example, on if we cut off a lot of plastics around the battery, the reuse of this plastic because of a new directive of the EU is becoming very interesting. But I think it's important to always keep in mind, we're not a research institute, right? We need to make products that are economically viable. And that's why we step-by-step would also tackle those last 2%. But it's an enormous difference. And this is also for the big corporates are very interested in what I just mentioned, this whole process we went through for the to be able to redistribute CO2 certificates because we reuse waste, so to say, uh, is something that's very interesting for the big corporates as well. And that brings me to uh, another important point as part of your your business model. And, and you alluded to it earlier through the use of data to make your process ever more scalable and, and, and economically viable, so to speak. You've got an entirely dedicated team that's working on the application of machine learning, AI, mm-hmm. And all this, because again, you need, you need smart smart devices today or smart arms, kind of to um, yeah. to recognize the type of batteries you're dealing with and how to how to accelerate the process of dismantling a, a battery. Again, time is money, so uh, so how do you make it more more efficient in, in that sense? Mm-hmm. But what's your what's your view on this? So um, what's the kind of the weight or the importance that that you guys attach to having AI being an integral part of your your business model? Yeah, so I, I think it's a very key point. Why? Because these manipulations that we do to batteries, the precision, the vision, and the smartness, these 
machines have would not have been possible two, three years ago in, in really scaling these solutions. So I think it's extremely important to what we do because it gives us the versatility to really be able to deal with a high variability of battery types. And also in the future, we will be looking at other products um, to also tackle them. So I think how do we approach this topic is that we work very closely with to five universities around Europe and the University of Luxembourg or, or around Luxembourg, so to say. So universities all close around because we really see there are a lot of very, very interesting developments in the academic space that us Europeans as a whole, I think, are really bad at bringing to market, right? The Americans are, are much more aggressive and probably also sometimes bring stuff to market that doesn't work that great, but at least they try it. And we're in Europe are there. We spend billions and billions for this academic R&D research. And then when, when the paper is published, then no one at the university cares anymore. And we try to be that extension um, to also then really bring those topics to market. And I think, and also with a few grants that we've now received both from the, the EU, but also research institutes, we really want to bring this AI in general and smartness to be more concrete of these machines into real life applications, because we do think it can make a huge difference in how resource efficient we can live. That begs for me the question, inevitably, as you can imagine. So you, you kind of, you're kind of operating quite Europe-wide uh, in terms of where you get your funding, where you get your ideas, mm -hmm. research and so forth. But having recorded, and that's, that's a key point for me here, having recorded many, many episodes with many other guests in the industrial complex, I am still wondering to what extent with a startup like yours, again, very talented, you need, you need a lot of engineering talent. You need a yes, lot sir. of, like you said, I mean, like you mentioned uh, earlier, like, like very motivated people to join this. And Luxembourg for me is not necessarily a, I mean, it's trying to keep up with other key locations in Europe, but it's a service-based economy. It's very difficult for, for industrial players to thrive in that sense, uh, again, because it's probably some political hurdles and all that stuff. But mm -hmm. why did you choose Luxembourg as a base, number one? And to what extent is the ecosystem favorable or encouraging you to keep your activity going on and at that location? First of all, we have a pretty easy answer to it. Both Xavi and me are Luxembourgish. That's obviously helped take that decision. But I think on a more factual basis, there are over the last, let's say, 10 years, there's been a lot of good development, in our opinion, in Luxembourg, right? Both on how we want to, or the mechanisms put in place to support startups. I think that's one point that, and this goes from the Minister of Economy, which then trickles it down to Lux Innovation and other research institutes and so on and so forth. So I think that there, quite a large amount of smartness is being brought to Luxembourg. We as a company alone employed four PhDs from University of Luxembourg. So that obviously shows that it does work. Um, I think on the other hand, it's also about Luxembourg is now, you're right, fully or very, very service driven, but I think there's also a lot of interest to re-industrializing the country. I think we, we come from a very down to earth metal industry, and maybe we now realize that it might be healthy for an economy to also balance it out and get, go a little bit into that direction again, obviously, as you mentioned, by, by using the upcoming trends, using we, for example, 
just signed an agreement with the Meluxina, the supercomputer in Luxembourg. We obviously need a lot of processing power for all the data we want to analyze. Um, so I think that's one very concrete example of how also Luxembourg is moving in the right direction, giving itself the opportunity to also attract these kind of companies, which are, let's say the industry, I don't know how you call it by now, 4.0, X.0. I've heard so many names. What I mean, it's it, it just smart manufacturing is probably what, what summarizes it the best. Um, so I do think it's inter interesting from a talent perspective, obviously, and I mean, it's no secret to anyone both in the public or private sector, the salaries that are paid in the public sector make it very difficult for us, right? I mean, you, there's no way a startup can compete with the benefits uh, government pays. So I think on the one hand, those motivated Luxembourgish people, we try to recruit as good as possible. We talked about using the network and that's a, an important part in Luxembourg. There's short way. So let's also use them. I think there we've been good at getting all the Luxembourgish talent and shout out to everyone, every engineer uh, who's still looking for a new challenge, please reach out to us. On the other hand, I think we have to be realistic that everything coming from every corner, both from Germany, Belgium, France, Luxembourg still is an interesting country to work in, right? High quality of life and so on. So there we get quite a lot of our talent. So we do need to attract it. One part that is becoming a real blocker is housing for us. We've had three candidates after we discussed and finally negotiated the offer uh, neglect because of uh, the difficulty of finding uh, housing. So that was obviously uh, a bummer. And I think politics uh, needs to address that problem. But in general, it's still an interesting country for people to come to and work. I also think we need to be realistic. Someone who wants to work in a city like Paris or Berlin is not, or London is not going to come to Luxembourg because they're looking for something different. But I think there are arguments for people to come to Luxembourg and um, we've been able to really build up a, a, a team of very, very talented people uh, to help us on our mission. Now, was it not one I was expecting a more critical rundown of, of the uh, Luxembourg ecosystem. Let me ask the question then a bit more explicitly now. Yeah. And this is one of our favorite questions, uh, always while staying constructive and, and, and looking through this uh, constructive lens, especially now knowing that we've got elections coming up, very important elections in October of this year. But if you had a chance, if you were given like a blank piece of paper, apart from housing, of course, which is a known issue, yeah. what would you change? Government salaries. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That would be, no, I, th I think that's, if we don't get some kind of control on this, I would call it a problem even. We're going to kill the private sector because everyone runs away to the government. And obviously if there's only people working for the government, there's not much income for the government uh, because that income comes from the private sector. So I think that's really something that needs to be addressed. I am also realistic in that. And it's very hard for politicians to change this because they obviously already, I don't know, I think the number was 43% of Luxembourgish people work for the government or for a para government, but I'm, don't quote me on that number, but a very, very high percentage. So obviously those are people who also go to the elections because I don't know how, when it was 10 years ago, I would call it very frankly, we were too stupid to allow non-Luxembourgish people to vote as well. So I think there we kind of trapped ourselves. And that's for me, a very, very big problem that we need to solve 
in the future to not kill the private sector because it's also a little bit the paradox is right the governmental system works based on private industries bringing in the money right so they they, they need also at one point to kind of reflect on this because but i think it will be a very difficult way to to reflect on it the mobility issue in Luxembourg, we see that i mentioned we have people coming from germany belgium france and their way home is a big problem for them as well right it's just they spend a lot of time in the car uh, which is obviously also not not productive for us so i think there there also needs to be some movement although i don't i do see there more movement uh, than on on the salary topic and then thirdly I think I think it's key that we also kind of find the right incentives for people, and I mean with right incentives, I mean in schools that we become more that the evolution of schooling system is quicker, right? So if everything in work life depends on using information smartly, not learning it by heart, not doing anything else, then I think it's also key that we start learning in school. Computers are a key part. I remember my mother taught me a lot of great stuff about nature and organic food and uh, anti-consumption, but she also was very critical about laptops, which was, which was probably not, I mean, I understand it from one point of view, but from the other point, I think we also as a society need to develop and embrace this, I don't know, digital era, if I can call it, without being blindfolded and saying, okay, everything's great and digital, but adapting also a little bit how we educate people and how we, how we prepare them for work life. I think that's very important. It, it pretty much resonates with my own um, uh, experience because what you're saying essentially, especially when it comes to the schooling system, learning things by heart, the, the traditional way, just having high marks because you, you, you know your topic, not because you, you're good at it. It's just, just yeah, you've got mm-hmm. good memory. I think thinking critical, well, thinking critically mm-hmm. is, 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 a, is a very good thing. Yeah, Use all the tools, you know. You know. <laughs> it's, it's okay if you, if you can't calculate things, you know, if you just use your phone to calculate some stuff, as long as you know that, mm-hmm. you know, with the ultimate outcome that you've calculated, you can do something with it. Like I've heard many people saying, oh, uh, you, you, you need to be able to, to calculate that off the top of your head, but uh, it's, it's fine. It's fine. That's what you've got yeah. te- 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 technology for. But yeah, no, this is one of the things uh, that, that's interesting what you're saying. It's, it's, uh, we have to be smart about this, but I think that kind of deserves a, a different episode because we're coming up to, our, to the end of our time. Uh, anyway, before we actually wrap up this uh, very enriching conversation uh, to me, Antoine, I'd like to give you like a, the last minute to, uh, as you say, it's difficult to attract good talent. Mm-hmm. to Luxembourg and I know you guys are, are like a, a hive of, of very talented engineers and, and business-minded people and, and motivated people but if you give me like the like your one minute elevated pitch now to any candidate listening or potential candidate listening to this to this episode just do it for me and then we'll wrap up very happy thanks for that minute to, to address that so I think I'd like to or we'd like to reach out to every ambitious young human being um, who wants to not only change something for the better uh, in his life, but also use his brain while doing that. So we are very, we, we hate politics in our company, right? So we are, if ideometocracy is something uh, coming up from Ray Dalio, which I really love. If an intern has the best idea or Xavier or me, you don't care. The person with the best idea, the best description of the problem needs to win. And if that's kind of the attitude candidates have, preferably in any engineering, because um, we believe in product-led sales. We don't need so many business people really looking for the best technical people, because that's how we're going to uh, solve the biggest problems uh, in our world. 
So in that case, please reach out. We have quite a few open positions. We have a good description of what we do on our internet site. So we work a lot with R&D institutes as well. So as long as you're hungry and curious to solve big challenges, I think we're the place to work in Luxembourg at least, and very eager to talk to any interested from intern to experienced engineer to talk to them and, and have an exchange on how we could change the world for the better together. Well, on a very encouraging note, uh, Anton, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak to me today. I pretty much enjoyed this enriching exchange. And uh, based on what you just told me, it sounds like there's lots of things in the pipe. So I'll certainly have you back on the show in the very near future. Thank you very much for your time, Adria. Thank you for listening to Luxembourg's leading business podcast. If you're listening to our show on Apple Podcasts, please rate our program using the five-star scale and leave us a review. Or if you're tuning into Spotify, it takes just a few seconds to give us a rating on the overview page of our show. You can also email us with your feedback or suggestions at info at luxunplugged.com. Mm-hmm.